Good morning. Welcome to Kesed. If you're new, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors. I'm so excited that you guys are here. This is a, that was some worship, was it not? That was, yeah, that, that was some powerful stuff. And uh, this whole weekend has just been a really powerful weekend. Uh, I think there's really a primary reason for that. I told you guys uh, last week that, that when we launched this series, Tear Soup, which is a series kind of taking on grief and all its complexities, that I really wanted to do it in the fall because uh, I thought it would just feel better driving to church in the rain and kind of the overcast and kind of all your seasonal depression. And, and, and I just want you, to, I want you to recognize how powerful my prayer life is. That's what I'm looking for right now. So what's going to happen? Every week, the weather is just going to get a little bit better as the brightness of the Lord shines upon your heart. That's, that's, <laughs> that, no, that's not true. But I, but, but, but I love, I do love that we're all gathered uh, today to, to be a part. I, I saw some people last service I haven't seen in 14 months that uh, was their first emotional Sunday back. And I think there's probably even a few more here. So, so thank you for venturing out. Thank you for taking a chance to, to be a part of community again. And uh, especially around this particular topic. Um, the, the, along with the Bible, the text we're using is uh, this book called Tear Soup, which was written by a local author. And uh, we've actually, we actually have now, I think, sold, or to you guys, have bought for cost nearly 400 books that have gone out inside our community uh, right now. So um, the book was given to me uh, by a man by the name of Byron Kaler. And Byron has been kind of my, uh, he has been my emotional health mentor for, for I think coming up on five years now. And uh, the book was given to me when my father died uh, unexpectedly in October of 2019. And uh, it took me a while to get, to get through the book. Uh, but, but the book and the premise of the book and this idea that grief is something we all share and we all deal with uh, really touched my heart. And so I wanted to do this series, but I knew this. I knew that, uh, that I'm not a grief expert. I'm not a therapist. I, I, I deal uh, with some trauma work with some of the church members here, and I deal a lot in my own trauma work with Byron. But we need a guide through this series that can do a little bit more of the fine-tuning. And so I asked Byron to share with us today and a few more times throughout the series so that we could really get these tools that we need to not just serve each other better, not just serve our neighbors better, but also serve our families and ourselves better because grief is such a powerful expression of how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And so I, I pray today that whatever you walked in with, whatever distraction, whatever's on your mind, that, that you would be willing to just engage for the next half hour with Byron as he, uh, as he walks you through this, uh, this powerful word around grief. So would you please give a warm, kessed welcome to my friend Byron Kaler. I can't tell you how nice it is to be back with all of you again. My goodness. And how things have changed. Last time we were together, um, it wasn't in this beautiful building. It was at Clark College. Um, it's a wonderful change. Last time we were together, I didn't even know there was a coronavirus. Um, I thought Zooming was something that I did in my car if I was late for an appointment. Um, I didn't know I was part of a herd and that the herd was moving towards something or someone. Or, so um, we've learned a whole new language, have we not, in the last year or so? Uh, metrics, you know, you're checking metrics every day, pivoting, you're loving that, okay? How many times we've heard pivoting in the last year compared to the, your whole life before that? 
So lots of things um, have changed. We have all shared in a trauma together this last year. Some traumas are personal and individual. Some other traumas are experienced by many. The trauma that you and I have been through in this last year has been experienced by all worldwide. We are living right now in a season of grief. We've all lost things this last year. Um, restaurants, conveniences, normalcy, a sense of predictability, um, routine, time with loved ones, um, some have lost jobs, income, some have lost loved ones. So we've all lost something. Um, I went to my niece's graduation yesterday, um, a drive-through graduation. Um, my wife and I uh, are part of a different faith community over in Portland, and on Thursday night when we shared here for the first time, uh, we both found ourselves crying in the back of the room as we, um, <laughs> as we were singing because uh, we realized that uh, it has been 14 months since we stood in a room and sang with other people in worship. Um, my wife and I have been, our faith community has been on Zoom for the last 14 months, so we've been singing um, alone in our living room together, which believe you me when I say, the only person that could be blessed by that would be God himself <laughs> without voices to drown me out. So, um, and, since it's just us, I'll tell you, I have a grand new first-time granddaughter that was born Thursday morning. Um, now, here's a sad, but I haven't seen her yet, okay? She just came home from the hospital, and I haven't been able to, because of COVID, and you couldn't be at the hospital, and all of those things. So, I'll be dashing out immediately following our service. I don't mean to be rude, but I get to see her this afternoon. So, and my son said, just prepare yourself, Dad. You're going to be crying like a baby when you look at her because she's so sweet. I don't know if you've noticed, um, but you may be feeling exhausted these days, more tired than usual. Not us, but people that we know might have been more irritable, um, less motivated, feeling kind of just down. All of those things, you guys, are um, signs of the grief process operating in you and all of the rest of us. Um, the world is reacting out of this grief place. I don't know if you've noticed also that the world kind of feels like it's off the rails. That's because we aren't generally at our best when we're grieving and the whole entire world is grappling with what we've been through. In addition to that, the grief that we are feeling now in the pandemic and have for the last year, 
something else really important to understand has happened. And that is new grief reactivates old grief in us. I see some of you shaking your heads. So I want you to hear this morning that that's normal, that grief can lay dormant for years, decades, and then something else new comes along and reactivates that old grief that's been waiting to be dealt with. Years ago, I had the opportunity to be a first responder uh, for Hurricane Katrina. So as a trauma therapist, uh, I and another therapist went down to New Orleans uh, not long after they had kind of cleaned it up enough for people to get into the city. And I began to meet with people for a half hour session all day long, from eight in the morning till nine or 10 at night. People were lined up in the halls just waiting for an opportunity to meet with somebody for a half hour. Something happened in that visit that I was not anticipating, but was significant to me. And that was, when I would sit down with person after person after person, I was trained in critical incident response, I knew kind of what questions to ask, I wasn't prepared for what I discovered. And that was that people would come in person after person, sit down, I would ask them, what have you lost? They would say, well, my home's underwater, it got washed out onto the freeway, my church is gone, my job is, you know, gone as well. And then about five minutes into their 30-minute session, they'd look at their watch and they would say, but that's not why I'm here. That's not what I need to talk about. And then person after person would say something like this. When I was six, my parents got divorced, and I don't know that I've ever recovered from that. The next person would say, when I was nine, I was abused by my neighbor. Um, someone else would come in and say, my brother committed suicide when I was 15 and devastated me. Um, I was at a party when I was 17 and, uh, and got raped. Over and over and over, the traumas of the past were being reactivated and drawn into the present. Unresolved grief, looking for resolution, for a way out. We are all grieving those losses. We're doing that either aware that we are doing it or unaware subconsciously that we are doing that. And part of the impetus this morning of talking to you about grief is to encourage us as a faith community to grieve consciously, to be intentional about our pain, our trauma, our sorrow, our grief. Because when we intentionally grieve, when we choose to lean into it, we become healthier and happier and more whole. That's why when Danny asked me to, uh, invited me to be part of the series, I jumped at the chance um, because this is such an important topic. There's probably never been a more relevant time for us to talk about grief and the role that it plays in our faith walk, 
in our interactions with one another and in our um, own mental health. Uh, these experiences, as you've heard, are unprecedented. I understand that Danny talked about Naomi last week. Some of you remember that? Good. Um, I met her, kind of, a Naomi, um, on an airplane. I had just finished speaking out on the East Coast at a conference, and um, I was jumping onto the airplane. Now, I need you to understand that airplane rides for me um, can at times be challenging for at least two reasons. One is, I'm a painful introvert, like, and planes you're supposed to interact with people, you know, at least that's a courtesy for sure. And so as an introvert, I was just looking, I get on the plane, I want to sit quietly in my seat, I don't want to really kind of talk a lot, and think a lot, I just... And the second thing that complicates it is, uh, I'm a therapist. <laughs> and so, you know, the person that sits down next to you gets a freer, you know, kind of four or five hour session if you're not careful. And so um, I had got onto the plane as I uh, frequently do kind of early because usually I'm in one of the cheap seats towards the back of the plane. And so I uh, made my way back, sat down, and then I started um, a little exercise that I hope I'm not the only person that does, which is you wait and you watch every person going down the aisle in the hope that they will go right past your row and sit somewhere else so that you can have elbow room. You're shaking your heads like you understand that process. Okay, so here I am waiting, kind of hoping for, to get lucky. This sweet lady, probably in her late 20s, um, enters the aisle dragging her bring-on luggage. Even though she was in her early 20s, she walked down the aisle like a woman in her 60s. It looked like each step was an effort for her to make. She found her seat number and she um, put her luggage into the overhead compartment and then sat down next to me. Again, there are certain courtesies on an airplane, and so you ask people where they're from and where they're going and what they've been doing and some of that kind of shallow talk. So when we got settled, I said, you know, um, have you been visiting on the East Coast? And um, she shook her head, and as she did, um, I could see tears start to well up in her eyes. She went on to describe to me that she had been extremely close to her father, like a best friend, that he lived on the East Coast, and that she um, had been there for his funeral, that he had passed away, and she had spent the last two or three days there. We talked a little bit about that, and then I asked, and Portland, is, is Portland home for you? And as I did, um, her head dropped down into her hands 
and she sobbed. I didn't know what I had said until she raised her face with tears streaming down and said, while I was out at the funeral, I received a call that my husband had been in a car accident and is dead. I'm going what used to be home to another funeral. In the course of a week, she had lost the two most important men in her life. I sat stunned. I didn't, I couldn't make sense of what seemed like a cruel and merciless world that would allow that to happen. There were no words, um, no wise counsel on my part. Um, no sage remarks, no comforting thoughts, no profound platitudes. I was dumbfounded. We just sat there, two strangers, in the row of an airplane with indescribable grief, and we cried together. Whether it's a personal tragedy like that, or a natural disaster, or a virus that sweeps around the globe, a personal violation, or an abusive, hurtful childhood, there is always pain and loss to grieve. Grief is the price of admission to this ride that we call life. It's inescapable. I want to talk to you this morning briefly about how to not skip the soup in life's meal. Because what happens with grief is so very, very important. And I know this morning that encouraging you to be sad, like, let's go to church and find out how to be sad. That'll be exciting. It's like holding a workshop on death and dying and being confused why no one signs up. <clears throat> so I know that it's a hard sell, but I, I want to encourage you to lean in to considering that because there are things when we grieve that occur that are good for us. All of us naturally recoil from pain. It's instinctive. You touch a hot stove, you draw your hand back, you don't have to think about it. We do that same thing, not only physically, but emotionally. It's uncomfortable to grieve, it's messy, it's never over quick enough uh, as we would like. It's uncomfortable to watch even in others, isn't it? It's just difficult to be there and it's horrible to experience. So why in the world would a nice guy like me encourage you to want that for yourselves or for one another? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, because our pain is going to find its way out eventually one way or the other. Our stories have profound influence over how we grieve. 
Carl Jung, uh, a student of Freud, you, you know him, <clears throat> said the foundation of all mental illness is the avoidance of legitimate grief, us running from the pain in our lives is how we get sicker rather than healthier. But many of us learned lessons about grief growing up. If you grew up in a home where grief was acknowledged, recognized, you were encouraged to cry over your hurts and losses. You were encouraged and, and people modeled what that looked like for you you look confused, then you would have grown up with a healthy grief response. Instead, if you are more like me and you grew up in a home where grief was avoided, pain wasn't talked about, people just were encouraged to press on, press through, be tough, um, then we're left impaired as adults and ill-prepared for events like the pandemic that are unavoidable. We're left with less skills on how do I navigate those difficult times. So our stories have profound influence on how we process our grief later on as adults. Grief is an important element of our growing. See if any of these messages sound familiar to you on your own journey. These might be messages from home. Here's what it sounded like in my neighborhood. Big boys don't cry. Um, you're being overly sensitive. Suck it up, buttercup. One of my personal favorites. Don't pout. You're being too emotional. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. All of those messages, you're acting like a baby, ill prepare us for grieving in healthy ways later on as an adult. And I wish I could tell you this morning that our culture supports that, or the church even has had better messages and lessons, but in my experience that hasn't been true. But in the church, it sounds a little different. In the church, it sounds a little more like they're in a better place now. You heard that one? Their suffering is over. They get to be with Jesus now. Don't make others feel bad. Things happen for a reason. Even with Job, do you remember the story of Job where he loses everything? And then I hear good folks talk about, but look, he got it all back, okay? A new wife, new children, like the others, didn't even count, okay? Where it's like, well, yay, trade it up, and uh, he should be happy. <clears throat> the world, what does the world say to us? It's a sign of weakness. I have piped in music at my office. And so I run like a Pandora station and that kind of thing, background music in the waiting room. I go out to pick a client up, and what song are they playing on my Pandora station? Don't worry, be happy. 
which is kind of odd for a therapist's office when you're trying to help people lean into their grief and um, do it more effectively. So the world doesn't help us out much on the messages as well. Why would we do it? Why would we make soup at all? What does grieving do for us? Well, I'm going to try to convince you in just a few minutes that there are treasures that we experience when we are willing to grieve that I question whether we can find in any other way. So we're going to look at those just briefly. The first of which is this. When we grieve, we are acknowledging and recognizing the value of something or someone. How many of you drag the trash out to the curb weeping? See, if you do, you should probably come see me. Okay? Because that, that wouldn't be a typical response. We don't grieve over the trash dump because we've decided it's not valuable. When we grieve, we're acknowledging to ourselves and the world that something important, something of value has been lost. And when we refuse to grieve, we minimize its value. We say, I guess this really didn't matter so much. Now here's what I want you to understand about that. When we say our wounds don't matter, we're actually saying we don't. When we're saying our pain is unimportant, we're really saying we are. There is a correlation between how we feel about ourselves, how we see ourselves, and our willingness to grieve our losses, to lean into our hurts. When they don't matter, we don't matter. And God says we matter. Second thing that grieving does is it promotes compassion. When we don't grieve our own losses, we're less comfortable with the pain of other people. Have you noticed that? We minimize it, discount it, avoid it. That's a problem when you and I are called to bear each other's burdens. Now, I came this morning with um, a pop quiz, okay, just so that you feel like you could be in it. Somebody tell me what the shortest verse in the Bible is. Well done. The other, the other times they, they didn't get it, I had to tell them. Well, that's not true. They got it. So Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. In junior high, that was one of my favorites. Okay, memorizing Bible verses, I'll take Jesus wept. Okay, John 11, 35, dialed in. Now, I'm sure that being the astute Bible students that you are, you probably already know this, but 
when the Bible was written, when the authors wrote it, there were no verses. It was all just one text. It was only later that scribes came along, and to make it more manageable for us so we could find things, they added verses. Don't you wonder, don't you wonder this morning about those scribes deciding that those two words were so important they could stand on their own and deserve their own verse. Jesus wept. Now the story that that verse finds its context in is very intriguing. It's the story of Lazarus, you may remember. He has just died four days in the grave. Jesus shows up to talk with Mary, Martha, and the others. Jesus is very close to this family. I mean, they're connected. And Jesus shows up in the story knowing exactly what he's going to do. Like his intention is to raise Lazarus. He, the text says that. And he tells them that. And they're grieving. And then he says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus wept. Grieving promotes compassion. Why is Jesus crying? when he already knows the outcome. He's crying out of compassion. The God of the universe settles into our pain, our hurt, our trauma with compassion. And we do the same when we're willing to grieve in the lives of those of us around us. That is part of how we carry one another's burdens, being willing to grieve with them. So grieving is an expression of love for one another. The third thing that grieving does is this. It invites intimacy. It invites intimacy with those who are closest to us. Not grieving blocks intimacy because when we shut down our own feelings, we shut down other people's access to us. Anger is often unresolved grief because mad feels better than sad, especially if you're a man enculturated into Western culture. Grieving instead encourages vulnerability, which is what intimacy is actually built on. So one could say that those who grieve well, live well. When you're familiar with your own grief, when you're not scared of your own sadness, when you are willing to touch your own pain, then you don't have to avoid hard situations, difficult circumstances, 
you can lean fully into other people bringing all of you, holding nothing back. That's how it invites intimacy, is that we can lean into one another wholly, authentically. Because I know if I get hurt, I can still navigate those waters. Ah, grief. Been there, done that. I can manage that. If not, we learn to hide from one another for fear of being hurt. Which is why not only do those who grieve well live well, those who grieve well love well. Because they're not afraid. They can be all in. And yet for many of us, when we've been hurt, do you notice the reflex we have? I'm never going to let that happen again. I'm not going to take that chance again. And we build a protective wall around ourselves to protect from grief, which becomes our own self-imposed prison and keeps us from being connected to those around us. Next, it fosters healing. It fosters grieving, fosters healing of our own. It allows us to heal from our own wounds. Pop quiz again. How many of you know the Bible verse, John 3.16? I didn't say it was going to be a hard quiz. Okay? In fact, I would guess that lots of you could quote that. How many of you are familiar with John 3.14 and 15? They're the two verses that come right before our favorite. They're not quite as familiar because, well, they're a little odd in some ways. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Hmm. What that's telling us is that Jesus is the source of our healing. See what it cost him. But here's the interesting thing about that passage. It's referencing a passage in Numbers where the Israelites, after leaving Egypt, have been complaining. Do you remember the story? They're getting tired of the manna. Can't we have kind of steak or something else? But it's just, you know, bread, bread, bread. And so they're complaining, and God sends or allows snakes to enter the camp. The snakes start biting people, and the people start dying. Now, here's what's interesting. He asks Moses. Moses says, help, we need help. And God says, here's what you do. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses makes a bronze snake, puts it on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by the snake looked at the bronze snake. They live. Now, I'll admit therapists read the Bible probably with a strange filter. But I got to tell you, I found that absolutely fascinating. Why does God want them to look at the very thing that hurt them in order 
to be healed. It's like he wants us to acknowledge our wounds so that he can heal us. They need to look at the source of their pain in order to be healed. He wants us to grieve because what we feel, we can heal. And finally, grieving aligns our hearts with God's. In Luke, chapter 19, there is a party going on. You're familiar with it. We often describe it as the triumphal entry. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. These folks are excited. The Messiah is here. Look at what's happening. Palm leaves are down. This is party central. And the focus of the party is who? Jesus. And where do we find Jesus in the triumphal entry? So think of this as a graduation party, and the person who's graduated is crying. And as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. My friends, some of what God may want to teach us in the deepest places is hidden from our eyes if we are unwilling to grieve. Jesus sees Jerusalem different than the people that were all chanting and, and rejoicing and shouting. Jesus' perspective in that moment was how God sees his circumstance in the world. Everyone there missed it. Jesus sees it. Grieving allows us to align our hearts with God's perspective. We get to see as he sees, understand the world as he does, if we are willing to lean in to the grief in our own lives. It holds treasures for us that are only discovered by our willingness to join the man of sorrows in acknowledging trauma, pain, and grief. It is there that he transforms us more and more into the image of his son. While the worship team comes to lead us in a final song, I want to tell you about that song. This song holds a special um, meaning for me, actually. Imagine this sanctuary. No carpet. The sheetrock is stripped up four or five or six feet on the walls because the entire church building has been under six feet of ocean water as it was in New Orleans. I had the privilege 
of sitting in a sanctuary, empty because of the devastation of the flood, and watch people raise their hands and sing the song that we're going to sing next. As you reflect on that, I want to remind you for a moment, if you'll just take a moment with me and sit quietly, you can bow your head if you'd like. I want to remind you of what grieving holds for you and I, if we're willing to lean in. When you grieve, you are assigning value to something or to someone. You are saying, this matters. I mattered. You matter. When we grieve, you are encouraging compassion for yourself and for a hurting world right now. When you grieve, you are learning to love well by bringing your whole self to others. When you grieve, you are aligning your heart with His, allowing Him to transform you into the very likeness of His Son. I understand that we wouldn't elect it. We wouldn't select tear soup from the menu of life voluntarily. But my call to you this morning is that when the soup is presented, there is wisdom in having it, in leaning into that place and letting God use that tool to distill us, to grow us, to move us. Will you pray for with me? Father, we love you. We're grateful to you this morning for who you are, for leading us into and out of hard and deep places. We're grateful, Father, that we have a high priest who is not untouched by our sorrow, who doesn't recoil away from our pain and our hurt and our trauma but that comes alongside, smooths the path, supports us. Father, I ask that you would grant us courage this morning to be those people who are willing to own and hold and embrace our own pain so that we're more prepared to carry the burdens of those around us as well. We thank you for who you are and how you care for us in our walk. In Jesus' name, amen. When peace like a river Tendeth my 
Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.